Um, we're now focusing more on this teaching and are looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Also cross-referencing with the same material found in Luke 6, which is the Sermon on the Plain, and also with some of the same teachings found in the Gospel of Thomas to kind of get a view, view of that. This is week three on this. Um, we started a couple of weeks ago, but kind of looking at the Beatitudes kind of as a whole, uh, with the understanding that, that probably the way they're arranged in Matthew is Matthew's doing. Uh, we have a different arrangement in Luke, and we have it slightly different in Thomas. Uh, these are probably statements that Jesus said many times, many places, and now they've been kind of organized. Uh, Matthew has the largest collection of nine of them. Last week, we covered the first four. At one point, I had this visions of grandiosity that we might do all nine. That did not happen, uh, but that's okay. We covered the poor, those who mourn, the meek, and those who hunger. Now, Luke has variations of two of these. Do you remember which ones are different? Poor in hunger. What's the poor? Poor in spirit and hunger for righteousness sake. Okay. Uh, Luke has a slightly difference. And we, what we looked at is that uh, Luke's look more spiritualized until you kind of get behind the language and see that, in fact, they're a lot closer than they first sound. Now, these first four uh, have one thing in common. They are actually descriptions of the kind of people that Jesus is talking to, his audience. Um, they are the common people of Galilee, which would include those who are poor and the meek and those who are oppressed. Uh, the next three Beatitudes, the second collection, there's actually three collections. First four are about the audience. There's the second group of three that we'll look at, and then the final group about persecution. These are different in some pretty fundamental ways. Uh, they do not describe the audience. They're about an entirely different topic. As a matter of fact, they're even more different than that. Uh, they're going to speak about qualities needed by those who would be a part of the kingdom. Uh, the first quality we're going to see is the quality of mercy. Uh, this is Matthew, and then we do not have Thomas or Luke on this one, just Matthew. Blessed are the merciful, <coughs> for they shall receive mercy. Again, no parallel, so all we have to work with here is Matthew. Now, in our society, um, mercy sometimes doesn't come off as being that valued a quality. Um, the... It's one of many species of roadkill. You know, the meek get run over. Those who are merciful get taken advantage of. Uh, so <coughs> in our society, our culture, we have that, that kind of a, a prejudice. The kingdom of God, it has value. And Jesus places it up there as a big value. And again, as, as we see in all of these in the teaching of Jesus, um, the teaching of Jesus is not new. It's not radical in the sense that he's saying something that's not been said before by somebody else or not found in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, in all of these things, you can pretty much go back to scripture, as we'll see. And what Jesus is doing with these, he's taking a scriptural principle, reworking it into a beatitude, and then sharing it with us. Within the biblical tradition, uh, mercy is one of the key descriptors of God. God is merciful. And we see that over and over again. For example, we have two traditions in the Old Testament of the law. There's the version in Exodus and there's the version of Deuteronomy, the second law. And so we have in Exodus this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. No surprises there, right? We've seen that a bazillion times. 
If you turn to Deuteronomy, same idea, slightly different. Because the Lord your God is a merciful God, he will neither abandon you nor destroy you. Now, if you've got the handout, there's a couple more, but I, I want to skip to Psalm 119. One of the interesting things that we see in the Psalms is that when the psalmist is about to pray to God and the psalmist is about to ask God for, for something, it's always preference with, by the way, God, you're a God of mercy. So would you kindly disregard the last few things I've been doing? Uh, it's kind of predicated on that, God. You know, not that I've earned this, you know. You know, I've slipped up here a little bit, but you're a God of mercy, so we can still negotiate here. Uh, today, in the Christian community, if you were to say God is, we're most likely to say God is love uh, from the letters of John. And so we, we think of God as being very, very loving. It's the key quality of John. But if you flip to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, you don't find that statement. But you find the same idea. But instead of the, uh, the, the language being that God is love, God is merciful. It it's describes God's character, describes who God is. Uh, the word is an interesting word. It's, it's rahim. Um, and it's translated at least four different ways in your English Bible. Uh, mercy being one of them. It literally means compassion. Uh, to have rahim means that I have compassion and I can feel for the pain and sorrow and suffering of others. I have the ability to feel that with them and feel that for them. So sometimes it's translated as mercy or compassion or goodness or kindness. I'd like to be able to say it depends on your translation, but it doesn't. It depends on the, the text. Uh, the same word in Hebrew will be translated in all four of those ways in the same translation. So the, the word kind of captures all of that. It is one of the most common descriptors that we're going to find of God in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, there's a sort of a statement you find the Lord is gracious and merciful. And that, if you ever look that up in the lexicon, it, it, many, many times. But there's a different part of this. In the Old Testament, mercy is not just a quality of God or God's character or what God's like. Mercy is something that, all that God repeatedly says to God's people. It's what, what God wants from them back. I'm a merciful God, and I expect you to be merciful in return. And so we find some very, very famous scriptures. Hosea 6, you probably can know, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hosea went from the southern kingdom of Judah up to the northern kingdom of Israel. He went up to Bethel to where the temple was. He stood before the king and the high priest and all the priests of the place of the temple. And he said words they really wanted to hear. God is not impressed with your temple. God is not impressed with your sacrifice and stuff. What is it God really wants? Mercy. And sometimes it can even be tra translated as justice. Micah 6.8, again, very, very famous one. What does the Lord require of you? Let's finish it. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. So again, within the biblical tradition, mercy is a central value to describe who God is and describe what it is that God requires of us, what God wants from us. Uh, this beatitude blesses those who embody this. Uh, it blesses those who have the capacity to have compassion upon those who hurt, who suffer, the downtrodden, those kinds of things. In that re re respect, does it fit the first four? Yeah. yeah. The first four describe those kinds of people. And the fifth one says the quality of, of being able to be compassionate for those people and their situations is huge. Uh, 
both in terms of God and in terms of us. It's also a word that describes the ministry of Jesus. Who did Jesus go to? Who did he mix with? What was he about? Uh, and again, there's, there's, there's a consistent flow through this. Now, the second part of the beatitude gets really interesting because it reminds us that there's a connection between our being merciful to others and our receiving mercy. And that's just not right. My ability to receive mercy is dependent on my ability to be merciful. Uh, you remember the Lord's Prayer? This is not an aber aberration. This is core Jesus' teaching. We cannot expect to be treated by God any better than we treat others. And he could have gone all day and not said that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> being forgiven is our blessing for forgiving others. Those who are merciful will receive mercy. So it's pretty straightforward. Number uh, six would be in verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart for they see God. Now, just a little test here. We all grew up in this culture. Pure in heart, what does it mean? What have we been taught it means? Don't sin. Okay? Pure in heart, what do you got? Forgiving. Okay. Anybody remember Jimmy Carter? What's the opposite of pure in heart? Lust. Yeah. Uh, for us, the term pure culturally brings some things to mind. And, and the problem is, is that what it brings to mind for us can be very misleading in terms of what Jesus is teaching because it had, and this is true of several of these, uh, it is not the absence of impure thoughts or desires. Matter of fact, pure in heart has nothing to do with that kind of material. It's an entirely different thing that's going on here. Uh, for example, and this is where our culture and the culture of the 3,000 years ago is just flip-flopped. Uh, heart, we think of as being the seat of feelings and emotions, right? That's culture we do. You just need to know in the ancient world that is the exact opposite. Okay, Feelings were here. Down here was something entirely different. What we would today call the mind. Or more exactly, the will. The will was here. So when they talk about heart, we're and again, we can get really, really misled here. Um, the will or the mind, the word is leb in Hebrew, and it literally means will. You just translate that one straight out. There's no, no fanciness here at all. Now, if we're going to talk about the pure in heart, purity is not, not rocket science. It's unmixed. It's unalloyed. It is not diluted. So what are we talking about? We're talking about uh, focus. We're really talking about focus. Focusing on God and an unmixed, undiluted will. Now, if any of you, uh, Jesus is speaking of single-minded devotion to God with an undivided heart, um, these are the ones who will see God. So if you have this ability to focus, to be undiluted, and simply focus on God there. Anybody remember Soren Kierkegaard? You may have read this book in college. Purity of heart is the real one thing. Very, very famous writing. Uh, he's got it. He captured it. This is what the beatitude would be if we were going to paraphrase it today in our English, you know. It is not about feelings or emotions or about temptations. It is our ability to focus like a laser beam and to will that one thing. Now, again, nothing new, nothing radical. This is biblical principles 101 
from the Old, Old Testament. A uh, couple examples here. Do you remember the Shema? Anybody say the Shema? Hear us for the Lord our God, and the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the Apostles' Creed of the Jewish faith. Okay? That's their core that captures everything. So, here, Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Get the focus? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Focus, people. With all your soul, with all your might. This is the same thing that Jesus is teaching in that beatitude. Strictly going back. Now, where it really gets interesting is in Psalm 24, because this psalm and the Beatitude are so close, even in the same language, that there's a pretty good chance that Jesus probably has in mind Psalm 24 when he crafted and made this Beatitude. Uh, it's the same vocabulary, the same words. It is the same meaning. And again, he may have had this in mind. We can't prove that. But Psalm 24 says this. This is a question in the psalm. With what, uh, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? The hill would be to where? In Jerusalem, where are you going to go up to? You're going to go up to the temple. <laughs> to sacrifice, to pray, to worship God, okay? Who shall stand in his holy place? So the question here is, what kind of person and what kind of qualities qualify you to stand in the presence of God and to worship God? And then we have the answer that comes. Those who have clean hands... Makes sense. You don't want blood on your hands unless it's a sacrificed animal. Pure hearts. By the way, the term here in Hebrew and Aramaic and the term that Jesus uses, are, even though it's translated in Greek, is going to be exactly the same term. And they do not lift up their souls to what is false. Pure hearts, focus, God, not what is false. Clean hands, you're not doing that which is contradictory. They, these people, receive blessing from the Lord vindication from the God of their salvation or in the beatitude Jesus says they will what see God same kind of thing going on again very striking that the language the thought the meaning all essentially the same cannot prove that Jesus had this in mind but you better believe that if people were hearing this beatitude they would know Psalm 24 in the back of their heart their him their will their desire their focus is pure it's focused on something. Uh, they're not trying to use God for some other purpose. Not that we would ever do that. <laughs> not that that might ever happen in history. Uh, remember the Lord's Prayer again? Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Same idea. Utterly focused. It's interesting that in the Lord's Prayer, all this occurs before we're allowed to ask anything give us now somebody once observed if you said this and you mean it you've just limited yourself what you can ask for because i have to ask is it god's will you know is it, it fit, does it fit god's kingdom okay. matthew 9 blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of god this one is unique it stands out as distinct it's still a quality but it's surprising in the sense that it has some political overtones Anybody here of something in the ancient world called the Pax Romana? Okay. Big deal. Uh, this is the peace of Rome. Uh, Romans believed for centuries, and it started during Alexand uh, uh, Octavian's reign, um, that they had basically, 
you could go from one end of the empire to the other <coughs> safely. They had put the pirates to rest. They had, you know, they had secured the borders. Basically, if you were within the Roman Empire, which stretched several thousand miles from England all the way to India, that you would be safe. Very, very proud of that, you know, their greatest accomplishment. And they believed that for centuries. Now, you have to observe, though, that how did they achieve this? Brutally, you know, uh, through conquest, military might. The, the Roman historian Tacitus quoted an enemy of Rome. I believe he was a Gaul who had been uh, taken over in what we would today call France. And this is his comment about the Romans. To larceny, slaughter, and plunder, the Romans give the lying name of empire. Okay. They make a desert and call it peace. When all your enemies have de are dead, it's very peaceful. Okay. Which means that within the Roman Empire, and still for many people today, peace is the absence of war, right? Peace is when your opposition has been silenced. Within the kingdom of God and within the biblical tradition, peace has an entirely different kind of meaning. Does anybody remember the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. Shalom is not the absence of something. Shalom is the presence of something. Actually, shalom and kingdom of God are essentially the same thing. Shalom is the presence of that which God would have it to be. Uh, it's not just peace, but it's a sense of well-being. Uh, not absence, presence of something. For example, peace is something you make. What is the beatitude? Blessed are the what? Peacemakers. Peace is something that you're actively involved in. Something that you do. It's not the absence. Hence, we have the beatitude. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, again, making peace is something God calls us to. Again, we can't know for sure, but when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, you know, John Schmo Jew, first century, is going to be thinking, oh, prophet Zechariah. Because, you know, there's this statement there. For thus says the Lord of hosts, these are the things that you shall what? Do. Okay. Some things you should be actively involved in. Speak the truth to one another. Good idea? Pretty simple, yeah. Render in your gates judgments that are true. That was their court system. The judges sat at the gate, and if you had an issue or complaint, or you wanted to sue somebody, you'd drug them up to the gate, and then the, the judges do that. True judgments, not false judgments. Make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love, no false oath. Tell the truth, especially in testimony. For all these are the things that I hate says the Lord. Make sense? Peace makers. Peace is something we should be doing. Making peace means to do the things that bring us together rather than the things that rend us apart. So a Roman and Jesus would have pretty radically different views of what peace is really about. Now in the time of Jesus, now this is speculation, but it's pretty solid speculation. If you're living in first century Palestine, who rules? Rome. And they've got their legions to back it up. Uh, it is a period of occupation. It is a period of oppression. We know that there's multiple, uh, Josephus tells us multiple, time after time again, the Jewish people rebel, crush, rebel, crush, rebel, crush. Before Jesus, during Jesus' lifetime, and afterwards. There is a huge desire, an understandable desire, by the Jewish people who are occupied by foreign power to be free. 
and to be independent and to take the yoke of Rome and cast it away. Now, this beatitude, think about it for a second. If you live in a culture where people are dying and screaming out for liberation, for freedom, and here comes somebody who said, blessed are the peacemakers, might not make you overly popular, okay? Uh, it would have been somewhat controversial. Blessed are those who do not do violence. But how are we going to get rid of Rome unless we do violence, you know? Now, one of the things that, that stands out, if, if you take the message of Jesus, and it's pretty consistent across the board, totally consistent, and you compare him with like 20 other figures that we know about from this era, Jesus is the only figure that we know of, with maybe one exception, who did not advocate violent overthrow of the Roman Empire. It seems to be indicative of him. Remember when Peter took the sword and whacked off the ear? Those that live by the sword die by the sword, and Jesus heals the ear. Jesus consistently rejected the use of violence. It seems to be a hallmark, you know. Uh, and again, this makes him stand out as distinctly unique. Uh, we don't have a single instance in anywhere that Jesus ever advocated violence of any type. Now, this would mean he's swimming upstream. He is swimming against the current. The culture he's in is going to find this would be very hard for him. Probably the only people who would like it would be the collaborators of Rome, which would put Jesus with some strange bedfellows. Um, now, there's a, the f a, a writing that some of you know about and have seen that comes from the time of Jesus that might give us some insights here. It's called the Psalms of Solomon. Psalm 17 is the one that you really need. You can Google this. You can look it up read the whole thing. But what this psalm is, it's a contemporary document to Jesus and, and it kind of reflects the ethos of the time, what people want, what people hope for. And it's in the words of this psalm. Solomon did not write it. It's just done in his name. See, O Lord. God, look, use your eyes. See what's going on in our world. See what's happening to us. See the suffering that we're going through. And raise up for us a king, a son of David, which would be, another word for that would be? A messiah. Yeah, in the house of David, you know. To rule over your servant Israel. We, we want the Messiah to come. Now, what would we want Messiah to do? Well, we got some ideas. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers. Who might those be? Purge Jerusalem from the Gentiles. Hmm, any Gentiles in Jerusalem? Yeah, most of them are wearing togas, okay? Uh, drive out the sinners. From the inheritance, the inheritance would be the land of Israel. Smash the arrogance of the sinners. Shatter all their substance with an iron rod. Destroy the unlawful nations. Get a general tenure of the hope there. So here comes Jesus in an occupied area saying, blessed are the peacemakers. That would be an interesting thing. You know, it would probably have been received by dis bitter disappointment. The Gospel of John tells us that two or three occasions uh, there were people following Jesus and Jesus would say something and a whole group would just walk away and go, I can't follow him down that road. My hunch is that these are one of those. You know, for the group of Psalm, Psalm 17, they're not going to stay with Jesus on this issue. You know. They would hope for something else. They would hope for the new kingdom. Uh, another aspect of this beatitude is it said that those who align themselves with peace rather than violence, are the true children of God. 
Now flip that. Those who align themselves with violence are what? Not the true children of God. That will also make you real popular. Now, the Beatitudes, these three, like the first four gave us insights into the audience of Jesus, these are little snapshots into the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming and the kind of people who would enter it. Uh, Blessed are those who have compassion on the pain and suffering of others. And by the way, remember when they asked Jesus what's the greatest commandment? And it's love God and love your neighbor. Look at the first two of these. Have compassion on the pain and suffering of others. Does that mean love your neighbor? Got to be close. Single-minded in their devotion to God. Pretty close. Seek peace rather than strife or violence. And you just get a feeling there for the kingdom. Now, the last two Beatitudes actually kind of lump together almost like they're one because they cover the same topic. Uh, Matthew. And by the way, here we, uh, we, have, we have them in or we have similar ones in Luke and Thomas. We have all three. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Have we had anything about persecution so far? No, this is, this is new ground. For righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Do you remember back on the very first beatitude? What was the, what was it, what did it end with? Theirs is the kingdom of God. So it, it sort of rounds out here, beginning and end. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So they're being persecuted. Why? For following Christ, for following Jesus. Yeah. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. You may not get much reward now, but you will have a reward. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, no surprises here. Uh, People who stand up for God have a long history of being persecuted. Now Luke has the same material, but it's it's phrased in a different kind of way. Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Do you remember where that title comes from? Old Testament, a couple places. In the book of um, Ezekiel, God addresses the prophet as son of man. And it means human. human. In the book of Daniel, son of man is a different figure. It doesn't mean human. It means a a semi-divine figure who is God's agent at work in the world. And guess what the number one term that Jesus referred to himself is in the Gospels? Son of man. And you shall see the son of man coming in the clouds, you know. Jesus referred to him. The son of man has no place to lay his head. You know, over and over again. So it's a, a term for it. But so it's, it's the same thing. On account of the son of man, on account of Jesus. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. Got any Isaiah scholars here? There's a passage in Isaiah that gets worked several times in the New Testament. Uh, when James and John, after the crucifixion of Jesus, go up to the temple, the, 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 as they do every day at 3 o'clock to pray, there's this guy, member on this on the steps who's paralyzed and he's begging for money and and basically they say we don't have any money but what we have we'll give you and they heal him and then it says he goes up the steps leaping for joy because the book of Isaiah says that when God's kingdom comes the lame shall leap for joy 
So it goes right here. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Surely your reward is great in heaven. Same as Matthew. Thomas, slightly different. Jesus said, blessed are you when you're hated. That's Luke. Persecuted. That's Matthew. Blessed are those who have been persecuted in their hearts. Interesting. Uh, we think of the, 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 the internalization is more Matthew, but here it is in, in Luke, I mean in Thomas. They are the ones who have truly come to know the Father, which kind of harkens back to one of the early Beatitudes. They shall see God. Now, the last two stand out as different. They're not um, about the kingdom in any way. Uh, they have a different form. They have different language. As a matter of fact, they are so different that a lot of commentaries will say, we don't think these really belong with the others, and we think they may have uh, come from a different source. Uh, for example, they're not about the kingdom of God. The first seven Beatitudes are all about the kingdom of God. These are not. They don't mention that at all. And all the others say, you know, blessed are you for yours is. It has that formula. These do not. So they, they stand out as being a little bit different. Uh, and again, they're about being persecuted, specifically for belief in Jesus. This is why, until fairly recently, it was common if you got a commentary and that, that the commentary might say something kind of like this, you know, it's possible that the last two Beatitudes have been added by Matthew, uh, because when Matthew's writing his gospel about the year 85, Matthew's church is being persecuted. And we know that's true because there's a lot of evidence in the book. So, if Matthew's church is being persecuted, would it make sense that they would need to hear words of comfort about being persecuted? So the thought was, well, maybe Matthew just kind of whomped these in there. Maybe even Matthew created them to kind of just extend this to a new message. Uh, on the other side, you can argue lots of evidence during the ministry of Jesus that he and his disciples took a lot of heat, right? They were persecuted a lot. They, they took a lot of flack. And it's found in all three sources, Matthew and Luke. Now, do you remember we talked about this? If it's in Matthew and Luke, what does that mean? It predates either. Say, it's not, Matthew couldn't have put this in there, because then how does Luke get it? Unless Luke copied Matthew, and that creates more problems than it solves. Also, it's in Thomas. So, going back as far as we can into Christian tradition, to the earliest tradition of the teachings of Jesus, the earliest strata says that Jesus was teaching about being persecuted, being persecuted because you're a follower of him. So this is probably not Matthew's edition. I mean, he physically put them in there, but he didn't create the material. It predates him. Um, and you can make a very good argument that they go back to Jesus, probably at a different time, a different place, but they would go back to him. Now, it's often been noted that in the teaching of Jesus, um, we get what they're called the... the it's a reversal kind of thing, you know. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Those kinds of statements. All the Beatitudes seem to be based on a kind of a value. You've got the world and you've got Jesus. And what Jesus does is you take the world and it turns upside down. Now, this is, not some, this is something that did not go unnoticed by others as our faith began to spread. There's this interesting little story in the book of Acts, chapter 17. Um, Paul comes to town. Now, Paul is always peace and harmony, right? Not so much. Okay. Uh, where Paul goes, strife tends to go. So, Paul arrives in town, 
and things get stirred up real quick. These, and here's the complaint, these people who have been turning the world upside down have also come here. So what are, they, what are the Christians doing in their preaching? They're turning the world upside down. Well, I hope so, because that's what Jesus did. And if you're going to teach Jesus, you're going to teach those kinds of things. So uh, next week, uh, we're going to switch to a couple of metaphors where Jesus begins to talk about the community. What does it mean to live the life that God has called us to live? Metaphor of salt, metaphor of light. Hey, we actually...